Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is The Guardian. I think inevitably, when you're thinking about big changes in the economy imposed on us by the world, people are anxious. And that's why we need to level with people and say that there is a big future for mining. There is genuinely a very big future for mining in this country. And we can do something about energy costs without going over the top, without abandoning communities, without abandoning traditional strengths. Hello, people of pods. Welcome to the show. You're with Catherine Murphy, the host and political editor of Guardian Australia. And it's been a bruising week in politics. If you've uh, tuned into the parliament this week, I'm with Jim Chalmers, the shadow treasurer. And uh, before we started recording this conversation, we both acknowledge we're bar- barely alive. But anyway, let's, <laughs> let's, just, let's just... It's good to be barely alive. <laughs> let's just see how this conversation goes. Anyway, it'll be a doozy. Um, now, I've invited Jim in because uh, obviously the government is limbering up for, well, Actually, it's a bit hard to say what the government's limbering up for in terms of what the election narrative is, but certainly one of the election narratives is the economy. And I want to start this week with our Guardian Essential poll. If you are a regular reader, you will have already seen it, but the short version of this is that Labor, according to that poll, was in a level-pegging position with the government in terms of voter trust on economic management Does that seem right to you, Jim? Well, first of all, Catherine, you said the government's limbering up. It feels like they're limping more than than limbering. And I think one of the reasons for that uh, is because out there in voter land, in our real communities, real people are finding it hard to make ends meet. And that's because the cost of living, particularly petrol prices, are going through the roof at the same time as real wages are going backwards. So working families are being left behind. Uh, under this government on this government's watch. And so I don't know about those polls. Uh, I don't obsess over them. Um, But I think one of the key conclusions that it made was that when the economy is about how real people are faring in real communities, then we are the only big party in the parliament that's actually talking to those needs and those pressures and those concerns that people have. And you can't walk down the street of any community in Australia right now without people raising petrol prices and, in many cases, wages. And that's the crunch that I think middle Australia is feeling. Uh, And the government more or less talks past that. They see the economy in political terms. They see it in abstract terms rather than what it means for real people. And one of the things that we have been very disciplined about under Anthony's leadership uh, and in this job, Uh, that I get to do 
uh, is to remember that the economy is about people and we want to run the economy in the interest of the people again. I think that's what's been missing for much of this last wasted decade of missed opportunities. Yeah, it's sort of interesting because there were two metrics in that poll. There was the trust on economic management more generally and there was another one which was trust about which party would manage the economy in the interests of people, which has been a traditional labour strength. You've generally had the advantage there. It's just in the in the point of economic but, management. And I know we don't want to get stuck on the polls and I, and I agree, but the, the point of me asking the question is not really to be a smart-ass. The, the, the point is... Do you feel like there is a sea change out there in terms of people's attitudes to labour as economic managers? I certainly feel like people are more receptive to us as they feel this pressure and as it dawns on them that we've had this government now for almost a decade. They're asking effectively for the beginnings of a second decade in office and people are going backwards, wages and petrol prices and all the things I mentioned. But even if you take the parts of the economy that the government itself has asked to be judged on, debt, growth, employment, all the rest of it, record debt, you know, eight deficits. This is the first government to deliver eight consecutive deficits since the 1920s. Uh, So all of the, even if you, I think the economy is about people, but if you take the government's tests, the tests that they asked to be judged on, they're failing those tests too. You know, we've had weak growth for much of the eight years. Uh, The labour market's got 2 million people unemployed or underemployed at the same time as we've got skills shortages throughout the economy. So even on the measures that they've asked to be judged on, uh, they are failing. Uh, And I think that there is a sense out there in the community that if... um, you know, the government can't manage the economy, then what's the what's the point of them? And the other thing I've noticed, which draws a straight line between the Prime Minister's lies and economic management, is it might be that the biggest lie that Scott Morrison tells is that they've done a good job managing the economy. The real experience of real people in real communities is very different. Well, let's get to that because inflation's back. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm not laughing. Um, you know, I'm a consumer like everybody else, but it's sort of... I just sort of feel in this permanent time warp, it's taken me several years to adjust to a no inflation <laughs> environment. It's yeah. sort of like just conceptually, I feel like I've just adjusted to it and now inflation's back. So we've got rising prices, which was another theme in the poll, and you've touched on the rising prices that people are concerned about petrol and, and other things. But it seems at least at the moment we run the risk of being in an environment of rising prices, but wages aren't rising along with it because employers are very conservative. They're coming out of the post-COVID period. You know, I don't know that employers are lining up to give their staff massive wage increases. So we, we understand the environment and the squeeze that you're talking about, but what can Labor do about it? Well, I mean, first of all, the the thing about Inflation and wages that really matters is the combination of those two things, real wages, and real wages are going backwards, and the government's own budget says that they will go backwards over the next four years. So this is the thanks that people get for getting Australia through the pandemic. Uh, There are meaningful things that we can do about wages. You know, wages growth at the overall level is about productivity, it's about investment, it's about economic growth, it's about the labour market being right. But at the micro level, it's about turning insecure work into secure work, and we've got a policy there. It's about skilling people up for opportunities, and we've got a range of policies there. It's about childcare and making sure that people can return to work, particularly women. Uh, There are a whole range of things that we can do at the macro level and at the micro level, uh, which can shift the dial on wages. This government actually said, Matthias Cormann, and you've spoken to him probably hundreds of times in the course of his time here, the most 
uh, senior economic minister that they had said low wages growth was a deliberate design feature of their economic policy. And that's the difference. Our policy is geared towards getting real wages growing again so that people aren't falling behind. So if they work hard, they can get ahead. The government has a very different approach to that. They pretend it differently from time to time, but their their goal is to get the profit share up and the wages share down as the economy recovers. Of course you can influence wages if you have a wages policy. Mm -hmm. Of course you can. But I suppose the point I'm trying to get to is, and again, just to go back to the poll briefly, 86% of respondents think that that governments have an influence over cost of living pressures. But we don't live in a highly regulated economy. We don't live in an economy where, where governments set prices. We have lived in and we're at the the end of a deregulated economy. Governments have less power now Mm. than they have in the last several decades. So isn't that a trap in a way for Labor? I mean, you're sort of taking the, you know, an empathetic position in the sense of understand your pain, understand precisely the pressures you're facing. We have strategies to try and shift things, but these strategies only impact things at the margins, don't they? I mean... I don't accept that. I mean, I I do accept that government is not the sole determinant of prices in the economy and nor should it be. Uh, But if you think about childcare, you know, the biggest commitment that we've made in this parliamentary term is to make childcare more affordable for 97% of Australian families. There is a big role for government there to ease the cost of living pressures. We've got a role to play in wages and we've got a wages policy out there which recognises that the main determinant of eight years of stagnant wages is insecure work and casualisation and underemployment, which has been the defining feature of the labour market for much of the last decade. So there are things that governments can do and we don't want to overpromise and underdeliver like the other mob do, but there are things we can do in childcare, in wages and in other areas. And also don't forget, I mean, right now the government's policy is to give Um, most of the workforce, a tax hike next year when the LMITO, which is the fancy term for the tax offset, comes off. And so you've got rising petrol prices, declining real wages, you've got a tax hike coming after the election. And this shouldn't be the thanks that people get for all of the, everything that we've done together during the course of this pandemic. We get out of it, we get to the other side, the government doesn't have a plan to grow the economy the right way. They want to take credit for the recovery, but not responsibility for the fact that we've been bleeding billions of dollars out of the economy uh, very recently. And we'll see that in the national accounts as a consequence of their failures on vaccines and quarantine. And so we think that the Australian people deserve much better than that. And cost of living, I think, is where the battle is joined. And the point of um, touching down on the poll and the concern about cost of living is to make just the obvious point that this is salient. People are very engaged on it. I mean, they are every election cycle, but they certainly are at the moment. So then it depends how, you know, that can cut either ways. But again, uh, I mean, you've answered the question, but I'll put it to you slightly differently, right? We are... we're not in, a, in normal conditions in the economy at the moment. Uh, anybody who's uh, building a house uh, mm-hmm. or understands that there are still major supply yes. issues yes. in the economy, like significant supply issues, uh, that, that drives up the cost of goods and services. Um, you know, like this, we're not out of the pandemic. It's not over and it's not going to be over for quite a period of time. So again, it's sort of, you, you say we're not going to over-promise and under-deliver, but I, I saw pictures around this week of, uh, you know, it's sort of like, oh, I think it was 14 years since Kevin 07, and there's a bunch of you <laughs> in your Kevin T-shirts, you know, sort of, uh, <laughs> I just remember that period very clearly. Yeah. Um, obviously, you know, Rudd, the first term of Rudd, you know, hit a major 
economic seismic global economic That's ringing edge, a bell, Catherine, right? yes. 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 Oh, no, I know it is, Jim. I know I don't have to lay it out. But anyway, there it is. But, but uh, you know, Rudd, for example, said, oh, well, we'll have fuel watch and we'll have this other bloody thing. I mean, it's sort of, it's a trap is what I'm trying to say. I understand your point. I mean, I, I do genuinely understand your point and we have to level people with people about what we can change and what we can't change. And that's why we said childcare, wages and some of the other areas around skills and all the rest of it, uh, these are the things that we can make a meaningful difference at. Uh, And one of the reasons why I think people are so disappointed in the government right now is because they look at Canberra and they look at the Morrison government and they see this dumpster fire of dishonesty and disunity and desperation, right? And they know that for as long as these characters are in office, fighting with each other and playing footsie with extremists, making violent threats and chasing Clive Palmer's preferences, middle Australia is not getting a look in. You know, we are the only ones talking about these cost of living pressures, labour, at the federal level. Uh, And I think people are attentive to that. And I don't know if the poll's right, you know, and polls have been wrong in the past. They've been right in the past. I don't know. I, I genuinely don't obsess about it. But I do think this is where the battle is joined when it comes to the election. I do think we have a superior economic story to tell partly because of this, but for other reasons as well. And so when the Prime Minister says he wants to have an election on the economy, it warms my heart. Okay. Okay. Uh, and just to catch uh, listeners up, um, we're going to get into fiscal discipline in a minute, um, but I just should bring to your attention, Jim made a speech this week, which flew a bit under the radar, given the parliament was a slightly turbulent environment. That's Catherine's charitable way of saying she didn't write about it. No, I didn't actually. I didn't write about it. <laughs> <laughs> that is absolutely fair and true. <laughs> anyway, uh, but look, there are reports around about it if you want to chase them up and the speech is on Jim's website. He did set out um, some tenants of a productivity strategy, which were uh, fixing the energy debacle, investments in human capital, uh, bumping up the NBN, childcare, other things. Go and have a look at the speech. Now, and, and he's obviously referenced them in this conversation as well. Now, fiscal discipline. The government is basically not going to reimpose its own fiscal rules until the other side of the election. <laughs> Don't you think that'll ring alarm obvious. bells in the community? They say there will be cuts, but we won't tell you what they'd be till after sure, you re-elect sure, us. Sure, sure, sure. No, I understand the secret <laughs> cut campaign, Jim, sure. But, uh, but I'm talking more, I'm, I'm just talking about the environment, actually. Yes. It's sort of like, obviously, um, it was problematic. You and I have discussed this in the past. It was problematic for Labor in 2019, Mm. uh, that uh, there were very large expenditures uh, bowled up to the Australian public in your very fleshed out program. And as a consequence, uh, your predecessor, Chris Bowen, chased a number of revenue measures, uh, which became unpopular and were weaponised, right? So they've got no fiscal discipline, the government. What does this portend for this campaign? Does it mean Labor has just says, oh, stuff it, we've got no fiscal discipline either, or, or how are you going to approach this? Well, no, of course not. I mean, we will be more responsible uh, than... Uh, the government, which won't be hard given we've got tens of billions of dollars in waste, you know, all that rotting, all that waste, all that mismanagement, the most wasteful government since Federation. But we will define responsibility by what it means for the economy and what it means for real people. But what does that mean? Sorry, I don't don't want to... No I don't want to disrupt your flow. It's your show, Catherine. It's, you can disrupt my flow. No, 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 no. It's important to hear you out. But but I hear that line a lot mm-hmm. from Labor, right? Mm-hmm. There's lots of waste. There's all these discretionary grant, grant programs yep. that are being rorted, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? 
does it mean that an incoming Labor administration would get rid of all discretionary grants programs? What does it mean? Well, it obviously means that where we find uh, the sort of rorting that we've been uncovering the last couple of years, obviously we'll address it. You know, we can't have... Uh, more than half a billion dollars for car park rorts in many cases in the Treasurer's own electorate that aren't getting built. We can't have that. We can't have sports rorts and all these sorts of things. So, of course, we'll tighten up the arrangements around some of these funds. Of course we will. Tighten up, you're saying, not not abolish those programs. Because, uh, look, I'm, a, I'm asking the question because mm. obviously if you did, like, cut a sway through the discretionary grants programs in the Commonwealth, you would have a significant war chest sitting there that would fund alternative measures. But you're not saying that. Well, we're not looking for a war chest. You know, we're looking for a more responsible way to spend taxpayer money, right? And I think one of the problems with the way that we think about the kind of alternative budget contest in elections is we accept that, you know, we being broadly, we accept that the government's got it right. And then so the opposition's proposals are measured against the benchmark that the government set. What I've tried to say in that speech and what I'm trying to say now uh, is that responsible spending means are we getting bang for buck? We're not getting it from rorts and waste. But are we getting bang for buck from childcare or a national reconstruction fund or investments in human capital? Yes. And so judge our fiscal position by what it means for the economy, what it means for people, what it means for growth and productivity and investment, rather than necessarily comparing it with a government's budget, which changes wildly depending on the political cycle, which has got all that waste in it, we think we can spend taxpayers' money more effectively and that's what we ask to be judged on. And it's entirely reasonable to talk about the value proposition with the spend rather than just a, a quantum, yep. right? And that's the point you're making. Exactly. But a lot of uh, the measures that Labor has proposed to date are off-budget measures. There will be an expectation among your supporters, for example, that given, you know, the university sector, for example, that is Australia's third largest export earner, has been, there's no words for what's happened in the university sector. Well, over I sit the last next to Tanya Plibersek in the parliament, so I get this well, for an hour and five minutes well, uh, is, every day. It, well, it is extraordinary. Yeah, it is. It, it is, right? It is. And, and there is going to, they'll, that's a huge job to hmm. turn that ship around, particularly in an environment where universities can't rely on foreign students. Mm. Um, you know, also social policy spending, you know, that the premiers during the pandemic, I guess you'd say, well, of course they would, but a number of them have said, well, you know, we need a proper conversation about hospitals funding. Mm. Like there's just not enough to cope with the extra surge in demand. Like there are spending on budget spending pressures everywhere you look. So what should people expect from Labor? Well, there's a few important things about that. I mean, first of all, on universities, the, the carnage in universities has been one of, I think, the underappreciated parts of the pandemic, and that's because the government doesn't focus on it. You're a quarterly essay author, and so I know you would have read George Megalogenes's quarterly essay, and there's a quote in there from a senior liberal saying, we hate universities. Mm, yeah, so, no, no. so the university's problem is, is well acknowledged. Um, and, you know, obviously, uh, I'm in conversation with Tanya and our team about what we might be able to meaningfully do there. That would come as no surprise to your listeners. Uh, but more broadly, you know, there's, there's at least two, th- two other points. First of all, we shouldn't assume that all of the misguided priorities in the budget or all of the pressures in the budget or all these issues are solely a consequence of a pandemic. You know, in lots of these cases, we've had eight years of problems which have been building in the budget, which have been more more or less neglected. If you look at the intergenerational report, 
the government expects them, many of them to continue for 40 years. So there's that issue. The second issue is this, and it's about expectations of a Labor government. We cannot undo all of the damage in one budget that's been done over eight previous budgets. And there are so many worthy things that we are asked to do and people have higher expectations of us and that's a good thing. We cannot undo all of the damage of eight or nine years in one year or one budget. Uh, And so we need to weigh up our priorities and we need to work out what we want to do first, what we would like to do at some stage. We can't do everything at once. And I think really that's one of the lessons from 2019 and 2007 is that we need to be as ambitious, but we need to be more focused and more sequenced and give the Australian people a sense of our initial priorities. Mm. So just one more question quickly before we move on. Just so in terms of how you present these things fiscally, uh, are you proposing during the government to do the traditional thing, which is any expenditure that you announce is offset by savings or not? The government's not doing that, so why should we? Oh, look, we'll... (laughs) We'll make that clear between now and the election. Um, you know, already some of the proposals that we put forward have got savings attached and some don't. But I think that, and I think your question goes to this in one way or another, uh, you know, the idea that we have to offset every dollar when the government offsets almost none of it uh, is, is, is pretty absurd. You know, there was one week where the government spent, I think, $9 billion in one announcement. Uh, And one journalist asked where the money was coming from. If I popped up and announced a $9 billion announcement. No, no, it's fair. Like Jen was asked. No, 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 no. It's it's a fair point to make. But, uh, and, you know, and in a way I'm sort of, the point of the environment changing is the environment has changed. You know, therefore we can, you know, we can look at the value of the spend because we're in different circumstances. But it's sort of like, it's like your point about you can't fix everything in one budget. You know, somebody is going to have to track the budget back to normalcy though. And, you know, so it's, it's not, it's not an irrelevant question, but anyway, I think I think you've answered sufficiently. Yeah, but just to looking, say, I mean, it yeah. won't, it's not. I'm not saying it will not be a free for all in yeah. the budget. You know, we are very careful about what we commit, and we know uh, that growing the economy is part of it. Bang for bucks, part of it. Addressing the rorts and waste is a part of it. There's an agenda on multinational taxes, which I think is going on around the world, which is important when it comes mm-hmm. to budget repair, but we will be more responsible than the other guys. Mm-hmm. Uh, and taxes, you, you did utter the magic word, um, you know, new taxes, any new taxes? Oh, look, I, I think you, we haven't concluded a view on the tax reform agenda, partly because you know, we have said that we want to do something on multinationals mm. uh, and multinationals are our priority in tax reform. There's all these international developments, President Biden, Secretary Yellen, the OECD talking about uh, minimum tax rates for multinationals. Yeah. We think that's important and welcome and we'll have something to say about that. So there will be a tax reform agenda and it'll be focused on multinationals. What about a buffer tax? Unlikely to be part of our agenda. Um, I think that the, the steps that have been taken by the OCD and the Americans and others, uh, I think is the most important part, place for us to focus. Okay, watch that space. Now, I want to end with climate in a tick because there's a pretty important decision looming for the Labor Party, I yep. think, over the next couple of weeks. But just before we move on, now, Morrison said this week, um, Labor can't win an election by whinging. Now, of course, he, he would say that, um, but he's right. You can't win an election by whinging. 
this conversation is sort of, you know, orbiting around that and it's sort of interesting and this conversation is sort of, you know, orbiting around that sort of, uh, well, difficulty is the wrong word, but that that tension. You're saying to me very clearly, and Albanese has also said it, that, uh, you know, we did too much in 2019. We can't be the government in exile. We're going to have, we're going to sequence things. We're going to have priorities that un unfold over a period of time, right? You're not going to, you know, <laughs> come in with a fully fleshed out agenda. But at the moment, it's the, the, there's certainly some policy out there, for sure, there is, and more than people think, actually. But at some point, the, this offering needs to be expanded and significantly, and a story has to be brought together. And it's not really clear what that story is, because at the moment, you guys are fully intent on branding the Prime Minister in a certain way. That is your overwhelming objective. Your your objective is not to present a, a, an alternative at this point, although you'll dispute that, I know. But predominantly, this is this is your objective at the moment, right? But it's sort of like, you know, a character assassination of the Prime Minister is necessary, but not sufficient. You you do need to tell people what you're about. You know, I think Josh Frydenberg in the parliament called you, what did he call you, the 12th man or something? <laughs> I, don't, I can't remember. Anyway, you have, the two of you have He'll this. be devastated that you can't remember. <laughs> your, your phone, your phone's probably already ringing. No, it's true, it's true. No, well, you, have, you, you and he have this well-established big dog, little dog routine, um, which I'm going to leave the both of you to. But anyway, there's, again, uh, you know, if the economy is the central issue, Labor's economic narrative needs to actually reach people mm -hmm. rather than have people scratch their heads and think, well, what the hell are they on about, right? So yeah. what's the plan? Well, first of all, I'm the, uh, the Prime Minister is assassinating his own character. You know, every single time he jumps up in the parliament, uh, he shows that he is temperamentally incapable of leadership. And that's because he's temperamentally incapable of taking responsibility for anything, right? So that, that is part of the election. I'm not pretending that it's not. That is a big part of the election. Whether or not you want a prime minister who takes responsibility and not just credit, that's a big part of the choice that people will make. We don't shy away from that. That is part of the story. But you're right uh, that the alternative is important as well. And I think we have been clear. You know, we think that our economy and our society can be stronger after COVID than it was before, but it requires a plan and it requires ambition mm. and it requires uh, an understanding of people's real lives. And all of these things are missing at the moment in the government. Uh, and so we have got a hell of a lot of policy out there. It's focused on three things, uh, supporting working families, secure jobs and a future made in Australia. And there's a heap of policy uh, hanging off that. Uh, but our story is, can we do better after COVID than before? Can we tap the togetherness uh, that we saw during the pandemic to do something remarkable and end this wasted decade of missed opportunities and actually grab the opportunities and make them accessible to more people in more parts of Australia? That's our story, right? And I think it's a compelling story. And I think Anthony Albanese is doing a terrific job telling that story. Yeah. But, yeah. but it will always be the case that a prime minister which is shrinking before our very eyes, will be of interest to people, and so it should. Yeah, yeah, and and I said a minute ago, there is more policy out there than people realise. I think that that's true. There is more. Um, and I hear the story that you tell because obviously I watch everything. Paid to. Well, <laughs> watch everything you characters say. Um, but, but, you know, I don't think, you know, Labor's been reclining on the banana lounge over this term. I think you've been showing up to work every day. The problem is bandwidth. It's a bit like how we were talking about with prices, right, that things are not in your control. 
What's not in your control is how much your opponents occupy the consciousness. Mm. And in a way, it's sort of funny, isn't it? Because this was a strategic decision Labor made was to step back and put the focus on the government, right? That was a very early call that Anthony Albanese made. We, we're going to step back and you're going to look at the government, guys, for the next three years. And that has certainly happened. And the difficulty is then how you inject yourself without having Clive Palmer's advertising budget. <laughs> yeah. Well, Cl- yeah. Clive Palmer and Craig Kelly is the marriage of unlimited money with unlimited stupidity. <laughs> uh, and no, so it's a thing. It's, it's, it's an a issue. thing, yeah. It's yeah. an issue. Of so course. Yeah. Then how do you get your head above the parapet? I, mean, I, I, I agree with you that there is a certain amount of space in the public conversation and we play some role in deciding how that space is filled. Uh, but, you know, to be brutal about it, if the Prime Minister is going to get up and lie about going to Hawaii or something like that. We don't have that much control over that. Mm. Uh, That is interesting to people because it does go to his temperament. It does go to the, to the, the, the core of the Prime Minister. I mean, you've written about him at length. Yourself, uh, Sean Kelly, Annika Smethurst, you know, the picture that emerges of this guy uh, is that there's nothing to him uh, and he is built to take credit when things go well, but not built to take responsibility when things are tough. And, and you think about that, take the the personalities out of it, take the party labels out of it. Just think of the prime ministership of one of the best countries on the planet, if not the best. Australians deserve something more in their prime minister than what they are getting. And so that will be part of it. I don't apologise for us talking about that because it matters who the leader oh, no, is. No, no, no. I think it is necessary. I mean, it's part of any political campaign, but it, the point is necessary but not sufficient. But anyway, you've, you've addressed that. Let's move on to climate. That easy subject. <laughs> uh, anyway, as we've said, I think it's likely that Labor will resolve its position over uh, the next week or so. Uh, I don't know when that will be announced, whether it will be before the Parliament rises Catherine's or not. looking at me with hopeful uh, eyes. Look, <laughs> it'd be nice to get a scoop with it, um, Look, I gather the options under consideration, we're talking about 2030, are a 35% emissions reduction target, which mirrors the government's projections, 35% plus, which basically uh, builds in what the states are doing, plus your own projected abatement from policy mechanisms as yet unannounced. Uh, or um, So that sort of takes you closer to 40 or a 45% landing point where you would basically engage the government's safeguard mechanism and you know use that as a baseline and credit scheme or something close to that. So which one? <laughs> Where's it going to land? Well, I think I think people are broadly aware of the the options, and obviously, you know, Chris Bowen's in charge here, and Anthony Albanese, and we've been having discussions for much of this parliamentary term, uh, and in the coming weeks, we'll make clear uh, our position. Uh, from my point of view, uh, I see climate policy as absolutely central to economic policy. If we get cleaner and cheaper energy into the system, we'll take the handbrake off investment. We'll get that productivity growth. We'll get that economic growth. I've done hundreds of boardroom meetings this parliamentary term, and the one thing that comes up more than anything is energy policy certainty and a bit of ambition and some interim targets on the way to net zero uh, by 2050. And so I I am really confident uh, that we can uh, strike the right level of ambition in our policy and if and when we get the opportunity to implement that policy, I think it will really shift the dial in this country and its economy. 
uh, because for too long the kind of 22 or 23 or whatever energy policies and the signing international agreements that the Deputy Prime Minister then bags the day after and, you know, Nats versus Libs and modern Libs versus the rest and all of that kind of stuff, that has genuinely held back mm. investment. Mm. Uh, as you know, you've followed this as closely as anyone in the country. And so uh, I think in doing the right thing, striking the right level of ambition, it will make a meaningful difference to our economy. Uh, and, you know, we can grab some of those opportunities which have been going begging. Now, you, but you say the right level of ambition. I don't, I, I'm not actually asking you to deliver a shadow cabinet decision that hasn't been made yet. I'm genuinely not. Hmm. Uh, but what's the right level of ambition? What is, what, no, no, I don't mean that. Like, I don't mean give, yeah, me, no, I don't I mean give me a target. Yeah. I mean, what does that look like? Yeah. What's the right level of ambition, Jim? Well, I'll make my contribution at the Shadow Cabinet <laughs> and I have been making my contribution. And so it's a, um, you know, I, I genuinely don't want to um, introduce that uh, collective decision-making process. Uh, but I think, let me, let me put it another way, and I say this as a Queenslander too, as well, you know. I was going to ask you yeah. as a Queenslander, yeah. actually. I, I really firmly believe that when it comes to climate, uh, we are underestimating people. Uh, and particularly Queenslanders. And, and I am, I've had a gutful of the kind of caricaturing of Queenslanders. Queenslanders are practical, problem-solving, pragmatic people. And I spent a lot of time in mining communities. I spent a lot of time in regional Queensland. They want to talk about hydrogen. They want to talk about solar energy. They want to talk about how they get their input costs down. They want to talk about how mining's going to be producing some of the key components for EVs and mobile phones and batteries and energy-efficient white goods. Uh, and so I think that Queenslanders and Australians, they want to do the right thing here. They're not stupid. Uh, they don't want to be talked down to. They know that there's an issue here and a challenge here. They know that we can turn it into an opportunity. Uh, but only if we get a settled policy that ends the climate wars for the last 10 or 15 years or whatever it's been, and we move forward in a way that recognises we can do something meaningful here without abandoning some of our traditional strengths. But do you think that Queensland, and in terms of the resistance to ambition, obviously regional Queensland is is one headquarters of that. Electorally, um, the Hunter Valley is another headquarters of that, potentially. Do you think that Queenslanders, because they weren't in 2019 ready to hear a, the case for higher ambition? Do you think they are ready now to hear the case for higher ambition? I think inevitably, when you're thinking about big changes in the economy imposed on us by the world, people are anxious about that. Uh, and that's why we need to level with people uh, and say that there is a big future for mining. There is genuinely a very big future for mining in this country. Uh, and we can do something about energy costs without going over the top. Uh, without abandoning communities, without abandoning traditional strengths. I mean, most of the conversations I have in regional Queensland uh, are with uh, traditional industries who are trying to get their energy and their uh, costs and their emissions down. Mm. Um, you meet with a port in North Queensland. I was at a power station in Mount Isa where they showed me where they're going to build kilometres of solar panels. Uh, and so I just I just feel like people are being kind of underestimated. Yes, the National Party are going to lie about the impacts of our climate policy, no matter what it is. You know, I made the mistake of flicking over on one of those uh, uh, late night news 
commentary shows the other night, the thing down the bottom said it was about how Labor's uh, 2030 interim targets would ruin the economy. We haven't announced them yet. Mm. And so we know that the scare campaign's coming. Scare campaign on this and petrol and all the other discredited uh, scare campaigns. I just think people are ready for a government which doesn't try and divide them on this issue uh, and says, here's something meaningful we can do without going over the top, without abandoning traditional communities that'll make a real difference, get cleaner and cheaper energy into the system, more jobs and more opportunities for more people around Australia. I think people are ready for that. Does it require some sort of jobs compact? Is it sort of something at the front end and something at the back end? Because that's sort of been the missing element, I guess. Uh, you know, do you think regional Queenslanders, and to be clear, I do not think that regional Queenslanders are a monolith or a mm. uni brain, obviously. Yeah, no, I didn't mean you. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, no. And I, I'm, no, I'm sorry, I'm not, I'm not saying that defensively. I'm, I'm talking to the <laughs> listeners. I'm talking yeah. to people listening to this conversation. Obviously, I'm not caricaturing you. Um, I'm just talking about electoral data. Mm. Um, the, is that the way to deal with this problem because in the past we've been talking about just transition, which is obviously now poison in the, you know, in the lexicon. Um, but, you know, there, there is a way to sort of marry ambition with some sort of secure path for, you know, economic participation. Is that what it looks like? Yeah, whatever you call it, um, I think that there's an opportunity um, for us to invest in new jobs and new industries in some of these communities, additional jobs, additional industries. Uh, And if you look at the Palaszczuk government, they've made some really quite remarkable uh, investments in Gladstone, in hydrogen, in Townsville, in other uh, minerals. Um, Cameron Dick and Anastasia Palaszczuk have done a, quite a remarkable job showing people that we can build this new capacity, new jobs, new industries uh, in the clean energy economy, uh, which that people can see that they are tangible um, opportunities in regional communities. And I take my cues from that. I, I think that is the, the way forward here. And the Queensland government's shown us the way and other governments, no doubt, are thinking along similar lines, but I think that's the way through this issue. Mm, Okay, we'll watch that space again over the next week or week and a half or two weeks, I reckon. Thank you, Jim, for your time. I appreciate it. It's been a long week and uh, and a really tough one. So thank you. Um, Appreciate the conversation. Thank you to Melanie Tate, who's the EP of the show, while Miles Martignoni is on parental leave. Hi, Miles. Uh, Also, thank you to Karishma Luthria, who cuts the show. Oh, my God, it's the final sitting week of Parliament next week. (laughs) I daren't even think about it, but we'll be back. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.